Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. All right. Hello, my lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight's Book Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, we're welcoming Michael Wilson uh, Besseril to read from his new book, um, Resisting Extractivism. Before we get into the reading and the conversation he'll have with me, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers curbside pickup and online ordering on our website, www.skylightsbooks.com. All right, Michael Wilson Besseril is an activist scholar specialized in violence and resistance and environmental justice, particularly in Latin America. Originally from Mexico City, he holds a PhD in politics from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and is a member of the board of directors of Our Climate. He has previously served as visiting assistant professor of peace and conflict at Colgate University from 2018 to 2019, Jennings Randolph, peace scholar at the United States Institute of Peace from 2017 to 2018, and the University of California, Eugene Costa Robles Fellow from 2012 to 2017. Michael, it's such a pleasure to have you. I'm honored to be here with you, Lance. Thank you so much for making space. No problem. And you have a reading for us today? That's right, yeah. I, uh, I tried to keep it very concise, uh, but hopefully we can unpack a lot of it during the conversation afterwards. I'm excited. Cool, excellent. Um, so I'll start with a bit of the introduction and then I'll jump to the end of the, the first chapter. What leads people to take up violence against one another? Why do actors entangled in it choose to eschew or forego violent means of waging and resolving conflict? In my search for answers to these questions through experiences in activism, reading and conversations during my fieldwork in Peruvian mining communities, I came to understand violence as much more than an event of physical damage. Again and again, interviewees spoke to me about facing quote, ideological violence by the state discussed pollution as, quote, environmental terrorism, and decried the stinging yet, quote, subtle violence of everyday encounters. They presented conceptualizations of violence as material damage and as a discourse, as living conditions and as framework, as a framework to interpret reality. Because of this, it became clearly necessary and most productive to critically interrogate the very practices, physical and discursive, by which actors, including myself, articulated, perceived, and assigned meaning to, and thereby recreated violence. As a concept, violence defies definition. Any perspective of it is inherently politicized. Filtered by worldviews and shaped by conscious, conscious choices admitted and misinterpreted through everyday practices and attitudes, some of which may be considered violence in some instance, but not framed as 
violence in other times. Violence, therefore, is difficult to operationalize. understand. And unless maintain a critical lens to various that it is given. So I have these questions. Violence, accounting for how it operates under the surface more broadly, requiring it as an everyday phenomenon, an anomaly, or an aberration from the norm, violence is quotidian and, quote, hidden in plain sight, to cite from Timothy Pacharat. It is in interactions as well as in structures, environmental, economic, racialized, gendered, distributed unequally. Violence is relational, constructed, lived, symbolically. It exists in memory, emotion, pain, and physical trauma, as well as in economics, the configuration of institutions, ideologies that drive state control. And most importantly, it cannot be disentangled from the structural and historical contexts, which are, in the case of Peruvian mining conflicts, marked by exclusion and the exploitation of native and black people, their territories, and their ecological surroundings. These processes, while associated with long histories, are ongoing presently as living legacies of the colonial period, during which strict hierarchies based on race and gender were violently enforced. Dominant state, corporate, and media discourses offer new brandings and a flavor of legitimacy to these legacies, but their effects continue to manifest in the disposition, disposition, I'm sorry, dispossession of impoverished people of color. For people living in precarious or vulnerable conditions, such as subsistence farmers whose land is coveted by powerful corporations or women in places where femicide is common, everyday life is anything but nonviolent. What constitutes violence includes not only images of flames engulfing company uh, equipment in the front pages of newspapers, but also the results of blood samples in mining areas, proving that a majority of locals carries heavy metals in their blood at levels surpassing the standard levels of internationally accepted medical risk as well as authorities' efforts to cover up the results of these studies. Although less attended than a brawl between protesters and police, violence is the suffering of a low-income family whose child was born with unexplained spots on her skin, likely because of the family's exposure to pollution through their sources of water used on their skin, teeth, crops, animals, and so on. Water pollution and depletion are certainly physical forms of violence, especially when hundreds of thousands of people and ecosystems downstream are affected. Insecurity is a condition lived in everyday experience, but most of its forms rarely receive public attention. They go unnoticed by sensationalist and inflammatory definitions of violence, and by otherwise well-meaning actors uncritical of their internalized bias and unwilling to check their complicity with violent structures. To be sure, violence is not absent from society until the moment a crowd sets company equipment on fire. Rather, the status quo is constructed upon and relies on a wide range of structural violence and historical injustice characterized by authoritarianism, systemic exclusion and exploitation of other populations, and accumulation by dispossession. Consequently, concealing these forms of violence and inconvenient realities is also a necessary aspect of what is called the modernization project. This is what Henri Lefebvre referred to as the, quote, dual production of space and reality, where social norms are built systematically to highlight the wanted and conceal the undesired. A strict control over narratives is required to keep workers producing, consumers shopping, markets expanding, and profits flowing for a few. It is partly because these practices go largely overlooked that actors with little access to institutional power seek to draw attention by engaging in spectacular violence, such as property destruction, looting, and arson. Although these explosive moments get noticed by the broader public, physical confrontations encompass neither the full manifestations and understandings of violence that study participants share with me or articulated during my study, 
nor the tremendous local organizing and political efforts of rural communities contesting mining projects, the vast majority of which are not only nonviolent, but also explicitly anti-violent. In other words, the dominant event-driven logic of violence tends to reinforce what I problematize in this study as the quote, politics of attention and its selectivity over what is concealed and what is noticed. More than a mere conceptual clarification, this understanding is of major methodological and practical import. What that most types of violence go overwhelmingly ignored reflects not only media bias, but also a credibility of academic studies of violence and of efforts to confront it. If violence exists in many diverse, diverse forms, then the study of violence is fraught with superficiality and unchecked bias. These problems hinder the potential to analyze, let alone to transform and prevent violent conflict. In fact, they may exacerbate it by providing the violent, I'm sorry, the logical and structural mechanisms by which people see violence as justifiable by the state against its people, by non-state private actors against their opponents, and by people disaffected by political institutions. Violence can be found in experiences lived but not reported. It is in systemic discrimination, unnecessary aggressions, one-upping, masculinisms, classist arrogance, and structural exclusion. It is palpable, as one interviewee said, when mining company employees rev their truck engines to make noise or dust at the quote-unquote anti-miners walking by simply to annoy or intimidate them. Late at night and, by the, and in the early morning, those same employees bring those same trucks to harass protesters at their homes, shining their bright lights through their windows, pressing hard on their vehicle pedals, and honking loudly as families inside try to sleep. I have witnessed the same toxicity escalate to physical harm at road blockades when angry drivers menace protesters with their cars. It is similarly felt in moments such as when someone refuses to concede on something that would cost little other than pride, as it happened during one, quote, dialogue table that the state set up to mediate negotiations after a violent conflict between the gold mining company Barrick Gold, one of the largest gold producers in the world, and farmers in the La Libertad region of Peru. Their company operators prevented negotiators from offering substantial concessions. This combined with pressure by activists on their own spokespeople and ultimately thwarted the chances of reaching a temporary settlement. But violence is more than physical and more than an event. It is structural and embodied. It is symbolic and material, institutionalized and epistemic, deeply personal, but also inextricably social and rational as well as emotional. For these reasons, it must be treated as contingent and contextualized. It is the gasoline in the atmosphere and it can be sparked by spontaneous decision-making, long-term planning, unclear or incohesive commitment to nonviolent discipline, impulsive reactions to provocation and feelings of anger and hopelessness. Indeed, the exchange of blows between police and protesters is sometimes triggered by someone hurling racist and classist insults as it happened, for example, on the most violent day of the Conga protests in Cajamarca City in July, 2012. As captured in videos of the confrontation in downtown Cajamarca, a woman protesting pleads to police, why are you like this? Why do you treat us like this? Why do you mistreat us? To this one riot police officer turns and audibly says, because you are dogs, concha de su madre. Police killed four protesters that day. These examples crystallize the interaction between structural inequalities, desperation, or a sense of one's dignity being violated, and the rhetorics that frame our understandings and the outbreak of physical confrontations. They suggest, they suggest attention to feelings like disrespect and to language more generally. Within context of asymmetric conflict and inequality, everyday factors such as insulting words can make a difference between a peaceful protest and a violent confrontation. Violence is a discourse that gives meaning to experiences, a concept that can confer and wrest legitimacy, 
It can be found in the attitudes, rhetoric, and behavior of people on various sides of conflict, in their various animosities, resentments, distrust, and conspiratorial thinking. For example, mining supporters and company actors often repeated the notion that a web of environmental NGOs was responsible for exacerbating Peru's mining conflicts. Similarly, some mining opponents gratuitously blamed mining companies for most of their social problems. Clearly, the various forms of violence that occur within and surrounding Peru's uh, resource conflicts are mediated by discourses. This is where, in the introduction, I get into my positionality as a white, non-Peruvian researcher. Uh, I'm going to move forward to the end of the introduction, just so that we can open the discussion, but hopefully we can come back to how my positionality kind of opened uh, unexpected access to uh, usually secretive actors like mining company executives and people in the presidential palace in Lima. Okay. So this is just the, the, the end of the introduction. That many people have died over resource extraction and in resource conflicts inside and well outside of Peru is not particularly news, but it is now urgent. Extractive conflict has been integral to what we understand as Western modernity, a period marked by the colonial imposition and slow globalization of two European constructs, capitalism and the nation state. Resource plundering, motivated colonial exploration, the enslavement of black Africans and their descendants, indigenous genocide and displacement, and the construction of legal systems that will legitimize these economic relationships. Incentivized by private and corporate profits, the state sustains capitalism through the control of populations and territories. State control is not only exercised through physical violence, including beatings, killings, imprisonment, and displacement, but also by shaping the public subjectivity through discourses of, quote, development, of, quote, nation, and of, quote, security and insecurity. In a global context of a growing gl climate crisis occurring alongside growing global demand for subsoil resources like gold, copper, steel, oil, and natural gas, the stakes and tensions at the heart of such, such conflicts are immense. In Peru, as in similar contexts elsewhere, Biased mainstream commentators frequently accuse environmental activists of being backward, anti-development, and even terrorists. In framing protesters as threats to national progress, these dominant narratives effectively serve to dehumanize people, portray them as unredeemable, and justify their deaths as a, quote, inevitable part of uh, the project of modernity and development. While the people who benefit from the institutionalization and consolidation of this model tend to be, like me, affluent, white, male, and from the global north, I mean, I'm really not affluent, but I meant white male and from the global north. Those who bear the most violent collateral damage inherent to the system are overwhelmingly black, indigenous, dark-skinned, and especially women. Therefore, one cannot abstract these discourses from the white supremacist and patriarchal legacies of colonialism that have marked what modernization has meant and for whom in these landscapes for longer than five centuries. Such discourses and the commentators who mainstream them are not only uncritical of, but also partly responsible for how extractive capitalism intersects with various forms of state and corporate violence, components of modern development as a neocolonial, unevenly beneficial and burdensome and whitening project. Company social and environmental responsibility is endlessly touted in official speech, everyday conversations, online social networks and broadcast media, bark, uh, uh, propagandist journalism and in research response in Peru has typically ignored when confrontations are treated as merely spontaneous, pathologized or treated as culturally backward, criminal or violent and repressed where the former two responses help to justify state and corporate violence, land theft and systematic exclusion. This work demonstrates how contrary to these gender tropes, classist assumptions and racist representations, many local movements in Peru are explicitly working to promote, quote, sustainability and stop various forms of violence. 
In actuality, sustainability is a concept that they are theorizing, expanding, and responding to with much greater nuance and sophistication than is typically acknowledged in dominant accounts. Highlighting and analyzing their ideas, theorizing, and actions of people in these movements can help mitigate the climate crisis, advance environmental justice, and build more enduring forms of peace. Resource conflicts interweave inequalities and galvanize neighbors against the combined forces of global capitalism and the state. Precisely for these reasons, they are central to understanding and transforming the multiplying crises our planet faces. Only resistance that consciously cuts across these interrelated problems can strike at the heart of, of, of the issue and build alternative futures. Those on the receiving end of the extractive global order ought to learn from and support the leadership of marginalized communities that, in complicated ways, and despite their increasingly sophisticated forms of repression wielded against them, are barely organizing to contest and reverse, I'm sorry, are bravely organizing to contest and reverse the dynamics that are literally destroying the planet. Thank you so much. That's just, oh, sorry. No worries, sorry to. No, no, I was just gonna say, thank you so much for that reading. That was fantastic to listen to and just like, wow, so eye-opening to like uh, a lot of the political and just like, systemic violence that is going on over there. Um, so to start off our conversation, I usually like to start off a little lighter uh, with just asking, just to get to know you, um, with kind of, you know, the, everything going on right now, we're in a pandemic, we're kind of stuck at home and we're watching kind of a lot of things happening and which we feel out of control. What, what, are, what are you um, reading? watching, listening to that's kind of helping keep you centered and just like grounded right now when you everything feels like yeah. Awesome, I love that question. So I think uh, I've been listening to um, a lot of podcasts. Mm -hmm. um, I've been I've been watching webinars by by different, um, for example, I think the most interesting work being done in connecting the interrelated crises that you're talking about with coronavirus mm -hmm. and how it has really exposed how the entire model that we have organized our lives around is under question, is in question, is in crisis, yeah. and is leading us to destruction. Mm -hmm. um, the most interesting pieces of reading are, are from people like uh, Tamara Tool O'Loughlin, uh, Black women who are, are writing about the connections between the different forms of structural oppression and how they interact with political ecology and economy. Um, so um, yeah, I, I really recommend, uh, for example, a book called uh, Black Women Against the Land Grab by uh, Keisha Khan Perry. Uh, she's a professor at, I believe, Brown University. And it's about the fight for, for racial justice in Brazil. But what, what the book is about is about uh, working class women organizing to contest redevelopment, uh, uh, gentrification, essentially, in Brazilian cities, in a Brazilian city, uh, El Salvador. Salvador. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, you can see this from the perspective of racial justice, obviously, but once you take a look at how 2020 and the last year, especially since, you know, February of 2020, the last 12 months have exposed how the entire model that we're living in our lives in is in crisis, is leading us to destruction, that systemic oppression is not separate from environmental crisis, right? Um, airborne diseases like coronavirus come from, um, you know, this, this exploitative system of massive monoculture agriculture that decimates biodiversity and makes the spread of diseases more likely, um, that those diseases are also affecting and impacting Black, Native, and Latinx populations in the United 
United States more than any other, uh, killing people at disproportionate rates. And you know, these are the same populations that have been exposed to pollution, to contamination, to environmental injustice systemically and by design, right? Because this is not that the system is broken, the system is working according to design. And so uh, Black and Latino folks, and especially Black folks, were already uh, at a higher risk of um, uh, air pollution. Right, air pollution exacerbates the effects of coronavirus, makes you more likely to die from it. Coronavirus is also uh, disproportionately affecting uh, minoritized populations, and so these issues all kind of feed each other and are interrelated. I love, I love any uh, coming from Black women and environmental justice movements who are trying to connect these issues and get us to, th to see that the entire model is in question right now. And right. the only way we will we will fix it is not through minor reforms that patch the system and eventually make it stronger, but rather by completely starting from scratch and thinking anew. You know, we can't just, you know, make uh, gold recyclable or fair trade. There's no right. such thing as uh, sustainable large scale mining and open pit mining. And so how do we go about, you know, uh, building a more sustainable future? It really requires uh, downscaling our consumption, our consumptive lifestyles, especially as people in the global north, and especially more affluent people in the global north, mm -hmm. uh, who you know are uh, depleting the world's fisheries to consume expensive sushi, um, depleting the world's you know uh, subsoil resources in order to buy a new iPhone every year, and, and things like that. All of these issues are, are interrelated, and they're very much in question right now. And right. Uh, the people who are, are are better at at making articulating these arguments are the people who have been experiencing it at the front lines their whole lives. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of this just capitalistic um, kind of prison that we're in is feeding into that, where it's like the people in charge don't want to change that. And then like, they don't want to, they also don't want to let go of their power to let people who have been in the front lines kind of take the lead in making these changes. No, that's so powerful to, I mean, just like, I could talk about it for so long, but I, and I, and I, but like, yeah, the, thank you for that, those books. And what was the name of that book again that you recommended? So um, in order? It's called Black Women, Black Women Against the Land Grab, The Fight for Racial Justice in Brazil by Keisha Khan Y. Perry. Perry is her last name. Perry's her last name. So if you are listening, you can order that from Skylight Books or your local bookstore, and please do, because that seems like a very um, important book to be reading right now. Um, but to get into your amazing book, uh, Resisting Objectivism, um, my first uh, question for you, well, your book, like, you you have just such an extensive um, background in just, um, in just violence and resistance and environmental justice, but while, researching and doing the work for this book in particular, could you tell me about a time that you were just shocked and you were just, something that you learned was just like kind of groundbreaking for you and kind of just like a, just shook your world a little bit. Yeah, oh man, that's such a good question. Um, off the top of my head, I would say um, a couple of things. One is that I realized that um, the way that scholars have been talking about violence and, and this is you know the dominant approach to violence because there are of course exceptions and it's really coming from marginalized communities but the way that mainstream academia which is dominated by white global northern scholars and, and men um, is, is has been counterproductive in the way we approach violence because if, if our intent you know explicitly is to try to address violence to understand it in order to reduce it then the way we talk about violence was taking for granted too many things, too many assumptions, and reifying, reinscribing the privilege of the writer to be 
one, telling other people's stories for self-serving purposes, and two, uh, doing it in ways that ended up justifying criminalization and state violence. Mm -hmm. And so one, one thing that really was, was striking to me as I began this research around 2014, um, which was when I first went to Peru the first time, uh, was that, you know, and this was in a context of uh, global uprisings against police violence, against Black people in Brazil and the United States, uh, against police violence by uh, uh, people of color, campesinos, and and um, you know uh, uh, native communities in Mexico, for example. There were a lot of uh, cases, very significant cases of of police violence that were grabbing the attention of the world. And so I realized immediately that, I mean, especially by going to Peru and and talking to people there, that um, we were really justifying academics and academia and the way we had studied violence, uh, uh, at least in the mainstream was helping to approach violence as something that protesters created, as something that existed only when people protested, right? That was brought to light only when people contested the conditions of harm that they were experiencing. But those conditions of harm that they were experiencing were violent in and of themselves, right? It's violent that uh, there's a disproportionate uh, dumping of waste in uh, Black and people of color communities and indigenous communities. Um, there, it's violent that by design, people have been excluded from academic institutions, and so they cannot be telling their own stories. So what we hear are the stories of people who have a vested interest, whether they know or not, or do it, uh, in reifying their own positions of privilege above these other populations who we are framing as violent. And so, you know, violence exists in so many other ways, but the way we have treated violence was an event that only happens when protesters came to complain about the things that were causing violence to their lives. Right. So that's one thing. I mean, there are so many others. Um, yeah, maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> no, I mean, that was so, that just like, um, is so true. Like, yeah, there's, it's, you see that um, conversation of violence come up so much more when there's like the protesters and kind of on that like last year we almost a year ago which is crazy to think about we saw like kind of the biggest movement in the black lives matter protests and just worldwide not in like internationally you saw this kind of just protests where we were seeing people go to get on the streets which is crazy because you would think that in a pandemic like we wouldn't have to do this but people were seeing the need for it how like you and you were also working on this book you're probably finishing this book how did you see this protest this international and just worldwide movement just like in your book too because it seems like these two are so directly related and in the topic of violence and how like a lot of these protesters were like you saw like media trying to like their hardest to spin this as like a violent protest any like little type of violence you saw in media during that time was just like blown out of proportion. So how did you, in your research, kind of experience that? Yeah, in so many ways. I, I mean, what I love about this question is that really the, the insights that I'm talking about in the book apply to so many other ca cases, like you're saying, right? Uh, in the United States, powerful actors wielded rhetorics of violence in order to reproduce violence, in order to reproduce inequalities, in order to keep people down and put them in their place, right? To, to justify repression. And so in Peru and in histories of anti-racist policing in the United States and in other places, you see how the rhetorics of violence 
are used to criminalize people, to other them, to justify their deaths as part of, you know, a more important project of national progress or, you know, safety and security to keep you free from fear of those other people who are here to damage you. So. Uh, the, the entrepreneurs like Donald Trump, political entrepreneurs who can create this binary opposition of us and them and establish very rigid lines of who fits in the idea of the nation and who must be eliminated. This is very much uh, central to the book and you know we, it, it was exposed kind of very openly for a lot of people for the first time in the United States uh, over yeah. the last year. And it, it, it was exposed by the brave organizing that is not violent and also very explicitly anti-violent yeah. of black people who have just had enough right and so part of what i what i say and you know i mentioned this earlier but like it's violent that a lot of the the people who were covering these movements were white and come with their own you know our own uh preconceptions biases and assumptions and instead of checking those and understanding how whiteness plays into our talking about other people mm -hmm. um they were just saying things like well, sometimes they're violent and that's obviously not okay. And, you know, Wolf Blitzer on CNN asking his interviewees, please, I need you to condemn the violence. You're not okay with this violence, right? And the protesters who were being interviewed going, yeah, of course not. That's why we're out here. We're protesting against violence, right? And so if, if you want to put it in, into kind of like a quippy way, you could say that one of the insights of the book is that violence is other people. Violence is how we talk about people that we don't like. It's how we create a reality that we like and we conceal the realities that we don't like. Yeah. Uh, how we reaffirm our own power and status over those of others, even as we pretend to be helping them, right? Even as we pretend to be sympathizing with those people's movements until, and then you place a condition, right? I only support you until you make me uncomfortable because I want to remain comfortable as a white person in a position of power and your movement is making me late for work or, you know, is, is blocking my roads. And so up until that time, I, I, I supported you, but now I'm going to place a condition on your own liberation, which is kind of a paraphrasing of Dr. Martin Luther King, right? And the letter from the letter from Birmingham jail. Um, Birmingham City Jail, where he says, it's it's not up to you to place the timetable. It's not up to anyone to place a timetable on another person's liberation, right? And to place conditions on your solidarity. If, you're, if your solidarity is conditional, then it's not solidarity at all. Mm -hmm. It's it's a reaffirming of your own privilege. Mm -hmm. And like, did you think that like, kind of the fire that got, I don't want to say it got extinguished, but like, it's definitely lesser now than it was like almost a year ago is kind of that condition like that conditional like we don't want to sustain this kind of level of just um i don't know this level of protest that we had this level of just solidarity we had with the black lives matter movement do you think that kind of goes hand in hand with that yeah, definitely. I mean, you could even see that, like, the privileged actors who were sympathetic to the movement were rushing to 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 frame it as nonviolent, right? Mm -hmm. But even 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 this distinction of violence versus nonviolent reproduces a binary which is totally false, yeah. because by saying this side of of this world that I am creating in in my language, mm -hmm. this side of the world is nonviolent and this side is is violent. 
relies on a, a whole lot of assumptions about what violence is. And it's a construction of what violence becomes in your own kind of worldviews and your practices, your attitudes, and how you behave towards other people. Yeah. And so even just setting that binary and saying, no, well, I support the nonviolent ones, it creates that same kind of like div div divisive line, line of division between, you know, who counts as us versus them, who, what is acceptable and what is not. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, when people burn down a gas station, for example, it was because there were a lot of things burning them from the inside. And mm -hmm. all of the institutions that were here supported, supposedly and purportedly to, you know, as a social contract to bring them benefits, to, to increase their quality of life, et cetera, they were not doing that, right? They were doing that only to satisfy white guilt and there it stopped. And so they were saying, we're still getting killed, right? Uh, we're still suffering from all of these kind of exclusionary, systemic, institutionalized mechanisms of power. And because of that, we need to engage in this ritual so that we, we are hurt because we're just so sick and tired of not being seen. And so uh, a, a ritual of, of you know, protest that is like burning down property can even be seen and some some activists classify it as nonviolent, right? Because it's mm -hmm. kind of more for the ritual, for the symbolic aspect. And property, by the way, is insured. It right. is totally insured. And yeah. you know, losing property is is not like the loss of a life, which is happening all the time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, black people get killed at an immense rate in this country. I believe uh, it's every 18 hours a black person gets killed by a police officer in this country, and that is completely disproportionate uh, compared to the rates of Black of, of white people uh, being killed by police in just this country. In Brazil, it's way worse. Five black men, and you know, uh, increasingly abetted with a global war on terror. And so, yeah, police violence and protest against it is, is central to the book, and we can find it in so many other cases. And it's always, you know, there's no singular grammar of violence. Grammar, I'm sorry, violence is is constructed within the social fabric, which is always interrelated to questions of gender, race, class, especially race, right? Because one thing that I really want to get across, uh, and, and I hope this comes across in the book, but maybe I, I can use this opportunity to clarify it, is that mm -hmm. the construction of violence is not an objective kind of exercise that just happens scientifically in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. The construction of, of violence goes hand in hand with the construction of the other, which is always racialized and you know, additionally gendered and along class lines. And so there is no singular grammar of violence. What we need to study is, is how violence is constructed, period, not you know, taking the, the concept for granted. Right, and it's so embedded. I mean, like look at like um, the colonization of uh, the Americas and kind of just like that, so just the slave trade, the, like are a lot of, society and culture today has been formed from violence it's like violence is like in the fabric of the structure of this um of just like these countries and it's just so insidious it's so in, it's an insidious exactly. thing but like you know yeah. when you're not taught this in um school in grammar school you're not you're not seeing you don't know this you just go on thinking no this is like i know I, i'm speaking as american a usa american um this it's very like you don't you're not taught this you're not you don't know this until you're an adult and you hear someone talk about something like the Tulsa massacre in America which is such a violent and hateful thing that was didn't happen that long ago or um right. just like like 
anything that's happened in our in country like my my parents are first generation um they're I'm sorry, I'm first generation. My parents are immigrants from Jamaica. And just like even their struggle to get to this country is just so, you, you see the violence in it. You see it in everything. Yeah. So no, it's exactly. just, you're, the, way you, the way that you laid it out is just so like an amazing way to see that violence. And we need to have that conversation as a culture. Um, can we, um, talk about how in your book you talk about how like violence is and we talk and we kind of touched it but like we talk about how it's subtle and like it's routine and there's kind of that um it's like it's in everybody's everyday experience and relationships and the environment can we talk about that like what makes in like i like that word i used before insidious what makes it so insidious this violence in everyone's everyday life yeah, I think what makes it so insidious is that it's concealed, right? That, mm -hmm. like you said, some people experience it every day, but even while they're experiencing it and they're aware, they're, they're experiencing it and they're aware of it, when they go to school, which is compulsory, right? If you don't go to school, your parents will get punished because you're truant and criminal behavior, right? There are all kinds of ways in which state power is, is fundamentally violent, right? State control over the population and territory is predicated on the use of violence. If you don't pay your taxes, something's going to happen to you, right? If right. you don't do what, the, what, what what we tell you. And so when, when kids are, compulsed, are, are, are forced to go into go to school compulsorily, um, they, when, when people, let me do that one again, please. Um, when children are, are compelled to go to school by law and are punished if they don't, they, they know that they're experiencing violence, but they're, 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 taught frameworks of what violence is that are totally contrary to their lived experience. And so we start to learn a very narrow kind of tunnel vision idea of what violence is. Violence is like protest or it's it's those other people who hate us. Um, it's not the fact that my mom lives paycheck to paycheck, right? Or that we don't really know what's gonna happen after we run up my, out of my savings, um, that, that we don't know if we're gonna have food on the table next week, et cetera. And so, all of these forms of violence get subtly concealed through teaching practices, through uh, you know institutional mechanisms, through everyday practices, through media discourses that tell us you know what violence is and and prevent us from really being able to see that like everyday experiences for people living under a racist system. Uh, uh, if you're a black person in the United States, uh, your your everyday life is very much bar marked by different forms of violence, right? Mm -hmm. Redlining. Uh, the, the the legacies of colonialism and enslavement, uh, police violence, and so many other things. I mean, it's it's in the the layout of our streets, right? That that the waste dump is is closer to where the people of color live in a in a city, uh, so they have higher indices of skin cancer, uh, different forms of cancers, etc. Uh, that they have less access to healthcare, that they have to travel longer distances to see a doctor, to go to the grocery so store than their white counterparts in the same city. I mean, all of these things are violent and by design, but also concealed, rubbed under, shoved under the rug. Who are the, like, the concealers of this? Like, it seems like if something like this, is so that's so powerful, it's so concealed, who are the ones that are actively concealing it who are making sure that it like yeah. and why like what is what is the gain from actively concealing this violence instead of just like confronting it and ending it <laughs> like it, it's so right, it's exactly. so easy to say but like ending this violence right 
So, yeah, I mean, if you are a white person, you inherently have a vested interest in maintaining an idea of violence that is very narrowly constricted and constrained mm -hmm. and focused on othering populations, right? And so whether it is uh, uh, intentional or inadvertent, right? We can think of the different actors that produce this, but ultimately that, that bias infects us all. Whiteness infects almost everyone, including non-white people, right? Because mm -hmm. you go to schools where you are taught this and indo indoctrinated into it and taught self-hatred and, you know, the histories of, of uh, uh, resistance that come from Black and Latinx and Indigenous communities just aren't taught to you. And so you're, you, you begin to see yourself as, as kind of a subject of history rather than uh, an, an actor, an agent yeah. with you, you know power and a history of of boldness, and bravery, and resistance, and deep thought and theorizing about you know the conditions of your life and how to make it better. And so, to answer your question specifically, I think that there are many different actors who produce these tendencies and and, and biases. Um, white people in general have an inherent interest in doing this, but we may be doing it accidentally, right? So academics who are supportive of social movements might be subtly and, and accidentally inadvertently reproducing their own privileges in a ways that reify, you know, the, the divide between them and the people that they claim to be, you know, allies with, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to police agents, for example, they have a more uh, a, a more uh, clearly laid out interest in establishing the other as violent, right? They're the ones here to protect society, and it's those people that we need to protect ourselves from. So that's why we need these military this military gear, these you know like uh, tanks in you know everyday communities, etc. Um, when it comes to mining corporations, they really have a vested interest in more, uh, uh, you know, cynically establishing the other and the protesters and the people in their communities uh, uh, where they're operating who oppose their, their uh, activities as violent. And so, you know, there are people who do it more uh, insidiously, nefariously, more, uh, more subtly, more overtly uh, at different stages and, and levels and, and, and at, at all levels of society, you know, including media, um, and academics, the state, police actors, and especially private corporations, and the you know the media that they contract with, where they uh, either you know the, those uh, media corporations receive ad revenue from mining companies that advertise there, and so they become kind of invested in this political economy of extractivism, mm -hmm. or you know because they have their own subtle biases and they refuse to check them, and so they they're reproducing this idea of what violence is in ways that are you know deeply racist and classist and gendered. No, that's sexist. So that's so true. And like, even talk, hear, to hear you talk about even the people who are like academics who are like su supporting it publicly, accidentally still um, the whites, the white academics or not even just white. I feel like there's just people who are still uh, minorities who could still um, contribute to this like form of racism and classism and sexism from, but like publicly support it. It's so interesting, but like, does it make it making it act like having the, accidentally supporting it does that make it more okay does that make it more um acceptable because i can't i feel like it it's like a form of ignorance in a way too for just like to like publicly support something but that in your personal in your own life are still contributing to that or is it just like what does the gears of society just right. chugging along 
Yeah, I mean, it's both, right? I think yeah. you're getting at the heart of the problem, which is white innocence, right? The myth of white innocence mm-hmm. that, oh, well, they're just doing it because, or we're just doing it because we're, we're ignorant of it and we don't know any better. I mean, this excuse has been the excuse of the last 529 years, yeah. right? In this, in this continent that has been so profoundly shaped by violence that, mm-hmm. you know, violence is uh, all around us. It's everywhere. It's, it's concealed in our everyday lives uh, and it affects people disproportionately, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, the last 529 years in this continent have been profoundly shaped by white violence and then the the assumption of innocence uh, and, you know, being cloaked by the idea of ignorance or I just didn't know any better. I mean, if, if by this point when we see this revolutionary uh, movement calling for Black lives mattering, right? That Black right. lives matter and, and white people are still kind of reluctant to get behind the idea that these people are also humans, yeah. right? And not only white people, but also there's anti-blackness in, in the Latino community. I've seen this a lot in Mexican communities, but you know, in all over Latin America, I've, right. I've studied many countries in Latin America and, and anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity are, are huge basically anywhere. And even within, you know, communities of color, we can talk about colorism, et cetera. But so, you know, different people become invested in kind of reaffirming the status quo. And the more the, more the status quo, uh, uh, gives you power, right? The more you climb into it, the more you become invested in reaffirming it. And so it, it makes sense that, you know, we would feign ignorance and we would feign that we're just innocent and we just don't know any better, but you're deeply complicit with this and in fact, it benefits you. And so you, we're always implicated. I think that's the, the bottom line. One of the most important points I can make is that we are always implicated. And that's why resistance is so important because it, it it, it exposes all of this, right? It highlights the things that have been concealed, rubbed, uh, shoved under the rug, uh, rubbed out of, out of uh, view. And so, yeah, the, the brave organizing and contesting of these vi- forms of violence by movements of the oppressed, by subaltered peoples, um, it's more important to kind of highlight traditions and both white uh, innocence for what it really is, which is, uh, you know, complicity. Mm-hmm. No, that, God, that's such a, great way to say that um and like it's like even you saying that now just reminds me of like when I was 10 um like we were taught about the civil war as 10 year olds in elementary school in America and like they made sure to like say that like it wasn't about racism it wasn't about slavery and like that kind of rhetoric but like um it they made us like do a reenactment of it and i remember being on the side of the south being put it like assigned that by my teachers and like just imagine a 10 black 10 year old child like the mental gymnastics i had to go through to just like do that and like my my brother and my sister had went through that too where they were also put through the they were younger than me and they like were put through that same thing and it's just like it's insane that like they couldn't see the how damaging and traumatizing that can be for black children and even i think till i didn't even realize this till like five years ago how like that memory just buried in the back of my head of how just terrible that was until like exactly it's just it's it's crazy it's like it's that it's it's ugh, it's so manipulative and so right. in our culture yeah right um, which is how we we internalize it right even yeah, even exactly. people who are most exposed to these kind of contradictions who live it every day mm-hmm. are taught to internalize it and kind of 
given a, a double consciousness, right? A, mm -hmm. a, a different idea of their own, like, who are you going to believe what we teach you or your own lying eyes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, even like when it's like even brought to the light, even more obviously, like I think of like the Tuskegee experiments where it's like people just like were actively experimented on, like it's not even like hidden. It's still just like treated like the lesser, like the more hidden stuff. It's it's like, Makes sense. Uh, it's crazy. Um, That's right. Yeah. Oh no, I just wanted to- uh, I was just gonna say, and it-, it No, no, we're interrupting each other, go on, go on. Go I, on. I just really wanted to quickly add that, and all of that is ongoing, right? Forced sterilizations of minoritized populations in US prisons is still very much going on. Uh, yeah. Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, uh, black people in California, people are still getting forced sterilized. And, and you know, these, these kind of, scientific quote-unquote experiments against other populations, othered populations are still very much in the present today, right? Colonialism is not something that stopped, you know, in the 20th century somehow during this second wave of decolonization when like 40 African countries and, and uh, South Asian countries became independent. Mm -hmm. Colonization is st still very much alive just by virtue of where I'm sitting, for example, right? In I'm a settler in uh, unceded Nisqually territory, for example. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, like, in, I think of um, my parents in Jamaica who were like, colonization was like so present there for my parents who like, oh, just, and that's like one generation above me. Like that's, they, to hear them talk about their childhood in Jamaica and my grandmother, my grandmother actually uh, marched when Queen uh, Elizabeth did her tour and was in Jamaica and like, it's so funny I was watching the show The Crown and you could see like her do this and I was like my grandmother is one of those women who were there it's like and I know my grandmother who like raised me but like it's still so like it still feels so removed like they want to remove it from history so bad because they know how violent it was but like That's it's right. not that removed it's not it's here it's right it's evident in everything that we do and everything we watch and everything we hear it's so uh, um, exactly. so I, want, I want to ask you about um, femicide and violence against women in your book, which is a big topic and, and just so important to talk about in Latin America right now. It's just like a huge thing that I feel like is not talked about. And that's definitely yeah. like due to like sexist misogyny for sure. But like, I feel like it needs to be um, to be out in the open. And I think your book does that. Yeah, thank you. I, I hope it does. I mean, I, I really treat femicide kind of tangentially because it, it, it plays into the book and then I feel like I don't do enough justice to this, but I'm, I'm glad for the opportunity to kind of think about it more openly because yeah, this is a huge problem. Latin America, Mexico, Central America, and even places like Peru. In Peru, I think the statistic is 10 women are killed every month by somebody that they know intimately. And this is not only Latin America, right, but also the United States. In the United States, and this is before Donald Trump, because a lot of you know liberals and, and especially white liberals yeah. make all our problems related to Donald Trump. But before Donald Trump, three women were being killed by an or former partner every single day mm -hmm. in the United States, which is a country of 320 million people. So you know it's a lot of people, but it's still hugely significant. At least three women every single day killed by an intimate current or former partner. The same is going on in Peru, where you know they have. 30 million people, but about 10 women are killed every month uh, by somebody that they know very closely. And, you know, in, in Mexico, in the context of the war on drugs, which is fueled by demand, by the way, by 
you know, rich white kids in university towns in the United States, right, who are, are you know, trying to experiment with cocaine and other kinds of drugs, um, they're feeding this uh, economy of violence where the state really becomes a, a, a subordinate actor to whoever has the biggest guns who control the territory and control the population and control, you know, what goods and services move through it and are very deeply exploitative. Right, and this is also the case in, uh, just to bring it back to mining, in, in uh, uh, countries like the DRC in the Congo, right, where uh, armed rebel groups are looting gold uh, using guns in order to pay for more guns in order to, to maintain, you know, their, their uh, rebellions against uh, the state, against different kinds of colonial, neo-colonial, post-colonial uh, state formations. Um, and they're also, you know, exploiting uh, young people, especially women and young boys, uh, for sexual exploitation, uh, for sex trafficking, etc. And so this is this is really a, a problem of, of the global south, but it's it's very much present in the global north as well. I mean, just because uh, we we talk about femicide as something that happens in, in Mexico or Central America, um, the United States is very much you know your neighbor could be uh, suffering from this, and we know this from from uh, some of the early early statistics we're getting from the pandemic is that the the indices of of domestic violence in places like the United States have have skyrocketed because people are you know forced to be in close proximity with their abusers. Mm -hmm. And that's so, I think I, it's terrible, but like, it's so great that, that that is coming out to the light now because of the, I mean, because of the pandemic, but like as a result of the pandemic, um, but like, it's just so mind blowing. And even the way I phrase it right now, looking back at it, I was trying to like separate the United States from Latin America, but that was wrong. And like, it's something that like, it's so like you want us, I feel like Americans try to do that all the time. They're trying to separate that kind of, the otherness of like, oh, this culture does does stuff that we don't do, but like, no, it's very embedded in our culture. Um, does this kind of feed into also the transphobia and uh, queerphobia, like the violence towards queer and trans people too? And um, just like both in the United States and Latin America and anywhere in the world, you kind of see that. Is it that same kind of violence you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely, because these are all interrelated issues, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right. Trans folks in Latin America are less like, and, and in the United States, but yeah. just thinking uh, specifically about Latin America, are less likely to finish high school, are more likely to, to become homeless, are more likely to be trafficked sexually, are more likely to uh, not become sex workers by choice, but become sex trafficked, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's a very clear difference between people who choose it as a profession, who should be legalized and have rights as sex workers, and people who are just violently trafficked uh, in order to be exploited uh, for their bodies, for their labor, for their time, et cetera. And so, yeah, these are deeply interrelated issues. Trans folks uh, are, are much more vulnerable than their you know, cis uh, counterparts in, in the United States and in Mexico. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, and in Latin America. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was able to interview a couple of trans folks in Peru and, and their descriptions of violence uh, were, were so significant, right? Were so, so um, potent at being able to kind of describe what I was trying to get at in the book as I kind of started uncovering what people meant by violence. So not, not trying to explain where does violence come from, but, but rather like, how do we talk about it? What does it do? Um, it, it, was, it was the insights of people who are living at these kind of intersections of different forms of structural violence that 
are doing the most significant, more, most interesting theorizing about it. And that's who the book is, is really dedicated to, right? Because I couldn't put their names on the cover of the book. There would be hundreds of names, but right. these are the people who, whose insights really make the book. And so uh, I, I don't take any credit for it. It's, it's the people who spend the time with me to talk about you know, what violence meant to them that, that deserve all the credit. No, that's amazing um, that like, and just like amazing that they can like have a space to contribute this and have their voices heard. Um, and in the, like, just like, I feel like we're growing and we're evolving in how we're handling a lot of um, just this information coming in. But like, I know for a lot of people and even me included in times, it feels like, I'm one person, I'm seeing all these issues come up and it's just so overwhelming. What can I do in my own personal life to help, to make just things better? What, do you have any advice for people who have this thoughts, these thoughts and wanna do the work but don't know where to start? Yeah, yeah, excellent. So a couple of things. One is you can easily join a political instrument and two, and let me unpack both of them together. But mm -hmm. one is join a political instrument because no matter where you are, there are already a ton of people working on the issues that you care about. So what I tell my students, what I tell people who ask me about these questions is, what do I do? One is join a political instrument and two is avoid the trap of individualism because capitalism and the nation state and the way that our lives have been kind of constructed and discursively created for us to understand our, our, our position in the world is to see ourselves as individuals and to see that, you know, if the world is burning down, then maybe I need to use Two-Face that comes in a tablet form or, or et cetera. And I mean, I, I do recommend you do those things, but right. that's not gonna solve the problems that we face because our problems are deeply structural. And so what we need is collective action to scale upwards. And so for that, what, what I recommend people do is find find the communities near you who are, uh, you know, the, the working groups, the organizers, the activists, the, the reading groups, the book clubs, for example, that are interested in the same kind of issues and scale your activism upwards. Because what we need is collective action. What we need is, people with uh, intersecting privileges to get in the way of the machine because this violence is everywhere and it's ongoing, right? And so people can get their, themselves in the way. And like you were saying earlier, you know, uh, white folks who are, instead of reaffirming our privilege to, to seed space because other people are doing, but I've got one of the good ones to just seed space, right? And, and sit down and listen is so important. And to take the leadership of marginalized communities who are and have been for 529 years showing us how to resist this violent model um join those political instruments get get in the way of violence especially if you're benefiting from that violence and yeah figure out a way that we can disrupt the machine because especially as people benefiting from different forms of violence in this in you know the way the world is organized in short join a political instrument and organize collective action and uh chances are wherever you are no matter what you're interested in people are working on these issues already Mm -hmm. I know that's great advice and I think that's great advice for a lot of people to hear and when you say a political instrument what do you mean by like do you mean like um the environmental groups do you mean like uh people who because I know there's in this especially since I feel like the Trump administration this has become kind of more of a commonplace um thing for people to be joining but like phone banking to like reach out to like 
everyday people, um, people who call politicians to like speak on behalf of the community's rights. Is this what you mean by political instruments? Mm -hmm. No, that's- Yeah, definitely. So exerting pressure on politicians and, and electoral institutions, for example, is a really important way to do this, uh, but also creating uh, alternative forms of democracy that exist outside of the state, creating communities with your neighbors, like through mm -hmm. book clubs. And, and you know, it can be as, as simple as that. It doesn't even need to be an activist group per se, but hopefully it scales up to that point. Uh, but just creating different forms of relationships that are more meaningful, more healing, more mutual. Um, this is how we begin to erode at, you know, the power of capitalism and a violent nation state is, is how do you find the people who you have something in common with and work to chip away at your own privilege to seed space to dismantle the things that you are benefiting from uh, because they are, you know, destructive and damaging and violent. Um, no, that's so. I mean, like, it feels so easy a solution, but it's such a powerful solution too. It's like these things are like these. In these are things we can do, and as a community, probably should be doing. And as no, not even as a community, just as people who live in this world, we should be doing this. Like it's our responsibility. Right. And thank you for just like writing about that. Um, so I, I'm at the end. I think we're at the end of the podcast. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing your work with us and sharing your ideas and just like um, just having this conversation with me. And um, I hope our community really just connects to it in the way I connected to it today. Um, and I just want to tell everyone, um, just please buy Michael's book. Um, I'm sorry, my brain went blank for a second there, but buy Michael's book. Um, where's my, where's my phone going crazy? Sorry. Um, I'll have them edit that out. Um, you could buy it at www.skylightbooks.com. You can order that book in or go to the store and buy it. And it's called Resisting Extractivism. And just please, and Michael, do you have any last words for our community and our listeners today? Yeah, I would say just in response to your question about what is a political instrument, a political instrument is just any organization doing work to confront the different types of violence that, you know, and thinking hard about what violence means and then working to confront them. So any kind of organization, book club, um, you know, as long as we, we move past the myth of the individual and individual solutions, mm -hmm. then we can scale upward um, the, the fight for the planet and for our lives. You know, and it's, I, I feel like people forget that we are like, no matter if you think you're an individual, individual, we are formed from communities. Like we are like exactly. the human experience is a community. Um, it's That's not right. a dealer. Uh, but thank you so much again for all of this. Um, and thank you to all of our beautiful listeners for joining in for, with us today. And please come back for another episode. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.